Before I, I get into uh, today's uh, topic and series, which is the second week of Jesus is Greater, which is um, aptly fitting, I think, for right now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I quickly want to address the events that took place um, on Wednesday at the Capitol. And I debated. I went back and forth. I talked with the elders, talked with other pastors, uh, even those uh, of the other campuses at Hope Community Church, and we, we all decided to do something differently. Um, debated whether I should send an email out on Wednesday to the church. And, and ultimately, I went down to, I wanted to spend time on Sunday talking about this. I wanted something to be on record. I wanted to look you in the face um, and talk about these things, not to gloss over them, not to think that it's unimportant. Um, and I just wanted to mention that uh, to us as a family, um, because honestly, nothing there's, I don't know about nothing, but there's a lot of things uh, that would be less than this. But one of the greatest offenses, I think, and, and what makes my blood boil more than a lot of things is violence that's done in the name of Jesus. And I know that there was a lot of people that, that marched on Wednesday that, that um, stormed the Capitol that, that probably had nothing to do with Jesus. And yet when I look out and I see lives being snuffed out that shouldn't be snuffed out early, and I see signs that say Jesus saves, um, something's wrong. Uh, they're not reading the text, at least not the same text I'm reading. They're not reading about the same Jesus I'm reading about. Um, there was a, a movie, it's not really a good movie, it's called The Kingdom of God. It's like eight hours long, Liam Neeson's in it, and the guy, the main kid from uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And um, there's just this, this scene, it's, it's about the Crusades, and you have the the Christians, you know, coming from Rome and wherever else, and they're fighting against the Muslims. And, and there's this, this scene where there are all these armies, these Christian armies with these banners and the cross on their shield, and they're trying to debate whether we should go and attack these people who are, who are different from us, who are infringing on our rights and freedoms as Christians. And so we need to go to war and attack them. And there's this phrase, they're, they're debating, and finally someone just says, God wills it. And that's just like, oh, that's the end of it. That's the end of the argument. Well, God, God wills it, and therefore, let's go to battle, let's go to war. And I think we see a little bit of that happening right now, that people twist Scripture to say Jesus would want us to fight for our rights, fight for our freedoms. When we look at the life of Christ, that he humbly submits himself to the will of the Father, and he actually dies at the hand of the government rather than fight against it. So I thought about, I honestly, honestly, I'm not, I'm not making this up. I probably spent more time trying to figure out how to say this, what to say, what not to say, what emails am I going to get after I say this, or what emails am I going to get because I didn't say something the right way. And I've, I've, this, is, this has been difficult for me. And so as I was debating what should I say, honestly, I went back and I was just like, I've already said it. There's nothing else I can add to this. That in just this last October, I spent two weeks talking about the myth of a political savior, that if we just had the right man in office, things would be fixed. Everything would be right. We looked through this through biblical theology. I spent another week looking at this idea of two kingdoms divided, that, that it's not just we have this religious sphere in the church, and then there's this outside, everything outside, including politics is outside, and so we can maybe influence, but we don't really have anything to do with that. But that's a, a bad way to view that. And so things can be manipulated. And so Christians, under this banner of two kingdoms, saying, well, we're in this kingdom, but man, we can influence that kingdom and we influence it in ways that maybe this sphere shouldn't be influenced. 
and the ramifications of that. Two years ago, in, in 19, um, I wanted to try to get ahead of the election, looked at this idea that there is three spheres, if you will, within the continental United States or the 50 United States of looking at, we have a two-party system. No, right? Two-party system. Hate it or love it, that's what we have. And we have the Republicans, we have the Democrats, and, and we have these two circles, but they're just in this diagram, right? We should be kingdom of God focused first, period. And then the kingdom of God and the scripture of God that is our highest authority can influence then my politics, but it doesn't become my politics. My politics cannot become my religion. I've quoted uh, my buddy, Tyler St. Clair. Now this will be the fourth time. Uh, my buddy from Detroit, he says, we worship the lamb of God, not some donkey or elephant. And listen, I, I'm not, I don't bring this up. I'm not talking about this because I, I got wind or I heard that, that um, you know, I saw some picture on the news of someone from our congregation, you know, standing there with a, you know, John 3.16, you know, sign as they're breaking into the Capitol. I don't know anybody who was there. I don't, I don't know of anybody that I would even begin to associate with that would be there. And yet, at the same time, I want to say this to the church. I want to remind us that in these tumultuant times, as was preached just last week, as we looked at the beginning and the introduction to Hebrews, Jesus is seated on the throne. That he is in power, he is in authority, and nothing has changed that. Nothing. Again, I can go back and I can quote, who I've already quoted it probably another the third or fourth time, one of our elders from downtown, uh, a lawyer, Brian Freeman. He says this, in our political mo moment, and then this was, this was back in, he wrote this back in uh, 16, so before the previous election, and yet again, nothing has changed. When Jesus is seated on the throne, when scriptures are authority, nothing changes here. I'm not trying to downplay what happened. I'm not trying to minimize what happened. But this is the truth. In our political moment, those who think differently or vote differently are viewed as the enemy, someone who has uh, beaten, someone to be beaten and shown to be wrong and misguided. But the gospel would say that we are to love our neighbors, extend grace, be long-suffering, and turn the other cheek. We as the church have a huge opportunity to model gospel civility, if that's a thing. To me, that means intellectual humility, willingness to admit that we don't know all the answers or how policies ought to work. The heart posture seems sorely lacking in our discourse and the way of relating to others in this arena. We have a real chance to be countercultural for Jesus here. As we look at this idea of these two spheres, and I've mentioned this as we went through two kingdoms just a couple months ago, that you have the spiritual realm, this heavenly realm, this earthly realm, and they were once fully united in the garden that God walked with his people, with his image bearers. But then we as humans chose the sin and we ripped that apart. And then there's this little overlap where we see the love of God and his grace and his mercy and forgiveness that cleanses that sin. And those two spheres start to overlap. And we're in this already, not yet, that Jesus has won the victory, and yet there's still sin and suffering and dissension. And yet one day, he's going to make all things new. One day, he's going to say everything wrong and hurtful and sinful is going to be untrue. It'll be as if it never happened. So the message was the same then as it is now and as it will be for all eternity. 
Jesus is greater. I was reminded of an old hymn that we used to sing growing up. I really got into hymn last week. I've got two this week. There's this old hymn called, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And the hymn, the chorus of that says, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. It is an old, old story that has never changed and it never will change. And so I want to just spend a moment in confession corporately, collectively, whether that be as a nation nationally or just as individuals or just as a church. But I want to bow our heads and I want to pray to this king who's seated on the throne. And knowing that the situation we find ourselves in here right now is because we are blessed to be citizens of the United States of America. The fact that I can get up here and say Jesus is greater than POTUS, come on, I'd be shot for that in a lot of nations in this world. I'm thankful to be here. And yet Jesus is greater. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son whom you sent to die for our sins is greater. Greater than the situations, greater than the thoughts that keep me up at night, greater than my fear that I have for my children growing up in this world. Jesus is greater. There's nothing to quote Job that can thwart what you have planned for us. Nothing. Not a riot, not a march, not murder, not treason. You're seated on your throne. And so God, I pray that as we just look at this even more this morning, that you would fill our hearts with a peace that passes all understanding. That when it seems like the world is falling apart around us, we know that this has not changed and it won't change. And it's a Christ's most beautiful, precious name we pray. Amen. So this week, we're going to be looking at Jesus is greater than the angels. And so I mentioned that last week. We kind of looked at it and kind of ends with, hey, Jesus is far superior, much superior than the angels. But we kind of glossed over that because this week, we're going to spend the entire time looking at this. And I, I did misspeak last week, so you have to forgive me. I mentioned that this phrase, Jesus is greater, is used eight times. It's not true. Uh, it's used 13 times, but it's, it's eight times, it's eight different variances of that. So it's Jesus is greater, or Jesus is superior, or Jesus is better. Um, so that, that's used, there's eight different variants, but they're used 13 times. So it's actually even more than what I said. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure I clarified that. So this week, the text is Hebrews chapter 1. Looking at verses 5 through 14. And again, just a, a little, tiny little bit of context. I want to spend a lot of time on this. But again, Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. He's written, they're written to, the book is written to uh, Jews, uh, most likely ethnic Jews who worship in Israel, Judaism. They follow Yahweh, and yet they've converted to Christianity. They say, okay, we're going to take these sacred texts, but yet we're going to look at how the Messiah. We're not still waiting for the Messiah. He came and he died for our sins, and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus says this. I looked at this last week, John chapter 5, 39 through 40. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me 
to have life. In Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said to them, how foolish are you and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things in order to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he, that is Jesus, explained to his disciples what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. And I gave this story, this analogy of the Jesus Storybook Bible, that there's these little stories, and, 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 and Sally Lloyd-Jones, in the beginning, she's kind of given a preface, and she says, we know these Bible stories, right? We know, we know about uh, Abraham and Isaac and Moses and, and, and Jacob and Joseph and David and Goliath and all these things. They look like individual pearls, but let's step back and look at the whole necklace, which is this beautiful entire story that all says it's about Jesus. Jesus is a better David. Jesus is a better Moses. Jesus is a better Solomon. All these different aspects and just how every single story that's told in that book says Jesus is coming. Jesus is better. And I kind of gave this illustration. I'm going to kind of run with this this week, but this idea of memorization for a test, that, that what's happening is the author of Hebrews is saying, you've memorized this. You know this. You've crammed for it. You can regurgitate the information you need for a test. But when it comes to actually applying that information, you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, I was talking with Paul Stiver. I, this last week, I had a, a, a week retreat uh, Monday through Thursday. Uh, it's called Pastor's Study Break. I do it every year. All the pastors, we go up about three hours north to a camp, uh, Trout Lake Camp. And we just spend some time in isolation early, uh, this year more so than normal. Um, but we had a, just a chance to, to rest as much as we could, um, even in the midst of, of turmoil and things going on. And so those conversations were, were had. Um, and, you know, I was talking with Paul, and, and I, we, we just talked about this. He brought up Awana. Uh, my church was too poor uh, to actually pay for an Awana program. So we did this thing called King's Kids, um, which was just uh, copy-paste. We're just going to change some language so we don't get sued by uh, the Awana Corporation. Uh, but what this is, is, is if, and if you grew up in the church, did anyone do one of these, Awana or King's Kids? Yeah, okay. And I'm not, do- I'm not, I'm not knocking this stuff, right? Um, that we would, we would go in and you had to re- re- memorize passages of Scripture um, from, the, from as little as I can remember up through, I think it was sixth grade. And you would memorize these scriptures. And Awana got like, they had like these really cool vests and pins they would get. Um, King's Kids, we got ribbons, um, which you couldn't wear, so they were kind of lame. But um, anyways, that, that's what it was. You'd go in and you would memorize a scripture. And what would I do? I would just cram, 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 cram. And then I'd go to my teacher, say it, right? Oh, cool, you did it. Here's your ribbon. Okay, great, great. What's it mean? <laughs> Not a clue. I have no idea what that verse means. Now, I'm not saying it's bad because I still to this day have a lot of scripture memorized that was just ingrained in my head as a small child, um, which I appreciate. And I don't know if my kids will do something like that, but but they're going to learn the Bible, that's for sure. But I hope, and I'm sure some of you had teachers and it was a a good experience in the sense that, hey, we memorize the scripture, but here's the point of it. That's exactly what Hebrews is doing. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing. You know this stuff, but what's it really mean? And exactly what Jesus said, this is all about me. So looking back just to last week, the verses that we read, this is the introduction to the book. It's a, the fancy word is Christology. It's the study of Christ. And it's a beautiful passage on who Christ is. So let me read it, and then we'll jump into uh, our text for today. He says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we're going to look at this idea of memorization for a test. He's going to use the material they already have memorized, and he's going to try to get them to apply it in real life. This last summer, we looked at what is wisdom. And he's this analogy, this, this definition that I've, I had, I've, I've known my whole life. I don't know where it came from. That wisdom is the right application of knowledge. That I have this knowledge, I have this information, but if I don't actually apply it to my life, it's foolishness. I think I use the analogy of like Survivor Man. I watch these shows and, and if you fall through a lake, you know, the first thing you got to do is you got to get your core warm because you don't want to get hypothermia. Your hands and your arms are hurting, but don't worry about that. Take care of your core. But then if I fall through a lake and the first thing I try to do is warm up my hands, I'm a fool. I'm not applying that knowledge the right way. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. So you, you already know this. Now, let me just try to connect the dots so that you can go, oh, that's what it's all about. And what's he going to do? He's going to say, turn your eyes on Jesus. Last week, the, the phrase that we used was, let me see Jesus. I just want to see Jesus. And the author of Hebrews now this week is going to say, look at him. You want to see him, just look at him. Turn, I want you to turn your eyes. You don't have to ask to see him now. I want you to look at him. Turn your eyes on Jesus. A, a woman by the name of Helen Howarth Lamell, she wrote the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is exactly where Hebrews goes. And what's interesting as we look at this text, Hebrews chapter 1, 5 through 14, what's interesting is that this is by far what we're going to be going through is actually Old Testament. That I actually counted all the words and did the math. I'm really bad at math, but I can divide. Um, and there is actually over four times more words quoted from the Old Testament than even are just the, you know, the, the author of Hebrews that's writing kind of the commentary. He just says, or again, and another thing, and again, and again. And he's just saying, this is what you know. Now let's apply it. Let's just connect the dots. That's all he's going to do. So four times more words of Old Testament than even the New Testament. He's going to go through and walk through seven Old Testament quotes. Uh, majority of them are from the Psalms, but we have a few other ones from uh, Prophet um, and then from the, the Pentateuch. And so, uh, and I want to just, again, I, I hate using big words. This, it's really important. And it's going to be important as we continue to go through Hebrews. This is this idea of, of metalepsis. And we've used that phrase before. Uh, big lips, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> metalepsis is this idea that you have this word or phrase that when you say it, it means a lot more than just that one word or phrase. And so when, when, when the author of Hebrews quotes a verse, there's a lot more there in the Old Testament context and even how they're applying that now. So, for example, 
Uh, my wife and I, years ago, we, five years ago now, uh, we had the opportunity to travel to Europe, and we fell in love with Paris, which a lot of people were like, ah, I don't like Paris, it wasn't fun. We loved it, because we found this one particular place, it was a cathedral uh, called Montmartre, Montmartre, Montmartre. Uh, I don't know how to say it the right way, but but that's what it was. It was this beautiful cathedral, and yet when I say that, if I just say that phrase to my wife, Malmar, she she knows I'm not talking about the the building. I'm not talking about the architecture and the and the beautiful uh, you know uh, gargoyles and things that are on this. No, there's so much ha- that happened there as we went there, and I can't even begin to just share story after story of of how much fun we had in that space. That's metalepsis. That is me saying one word or two and going, oh, man, yeah, man, I remember all of that. That's what's happening every time a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament. He's wanting us to unpack something more. And particularly with these two verses, Psalm 2, 7. So I, what I did is I put in the green there. That's not in the text. That's, these are the, the, those are the pastors in the Old Testament that he's quoting. So Psalm 2, 7 and 2 Samuel 7, 14 these would have been two verses that these Christians would have known. These Jewish Christians would have known and they would have known well to try to, as an apologetic, to try to defend the faith, to try to encourage other people. Hey, remember the, even the Old Testament says, this is the son of God. And remember Jesus said that all the time. He was the son of God. So Psalm chapter two, verse seven, you are my son and today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And we look at that first aspect there, Psalm 2, verse 7. It says, you are my son. And this was a phrase that was said a lot because, again, the story of Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, that as he's getting baptized, this voice comes from heaven and says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And they use this verse. Remember, this is a proof text. God said this out loud. Yahweh said this out loud about his son, about Jesus. He is the Messiah. And again, the 2 Samuel 7, 14 is this future-looking aspect that someone greater than Solomon is going to be here. Because this is a promise to David saying, I will be his father and he will be my son. And so a lot of people thought, well, is this Solomon? It's not Solomon. And that's very evident, very quickly, even the life of Solomon, that these promises aren't about Solomon. It's about someone greater. And Jesus even says this about himself. Someone greater than Solomon is here. Me. I am the one. So these two verses would have been very fresh in the minds of these first century Jewish Christians. And so again, he's going to, Take this, and he says he's going to use the material they already have memorized and try to get them to apply it in real life. And what is he trying to do here? He's trying to say the Messiah is much superior to the angels. Because we look at those first five verses, it's clearly Jesus, 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 and Jesus is superior to the angels. Now I need you to see the Messiah. Maybe you haven't connected the dots. The Messiah in the Old Testament is Jesus. Let me help you get there. Let me help you walk through and he's going to do this by saying he's much superior to the angels, which just seems like a weird thing to say. Why angels? Why, why do you start with he's superior to angels? Why not just get into the son of God thing? Why not get into all the, and he's going to, again, he's going to do it 12 more times where he's going to use this, but he starts with the angels. And why is that important? We just got through the Advent season 
And it was so much fun. Uh, this is not a picture of my kid. It was on Google. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess it, if I squint, maybe it could be my kid. It's not. Because um, our bulbs and our tree weren't there because my youngest uh, doesn't, wouldn't let us do that. Um, what happens on Advent, right? You've got, you've got these kids, and it was so much fun to, to see him open these, these boxes and these toys and just jump up and down. It was just, and just living through that again, almost vicariously, was just so much joy. And yet there were times, not so much with Henry, but for sure with Jack, who's almost two, where he would have this present, he'd have this thing, and what would happen? He'd open the box, and then he'd play with the box more than he'd play with the thing that was in the box. And that is exactly what's happening here in Hebrews. He's saying, whoa, 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 you have this beautiful, beautifully wrapped box. You think it's awesome, but what happened? You ripped it up. You pulled all this beautiful paper off and you realized, oh, this is just my, my dad's like eight-year-old shoe box that had some old pictures in it that he rewrapped and, and put a toy in. But I don't want it to be that thing anymore. I want it to go back and I want this beautiful thing but what you don't realize is that that old shoebox was just a container. It was just to deliver this beautiful gift of micro-machines or whatever was in there. And he's saying, you can't put it back in the box. You can't go back to this thing now that's old and tattered and worthless when we have this thing here. Because what happened within Jewish culture is they had this very, very high view of the angels. Why? Because every major account that happened in the Old Testament, angels were present or angels were the one delivering the message or angels were the one um, that were uh, fulfilling what God had told them to do. Giving the good news, giving the Ten Commandments, all the, their presence is in everything. And so this became this really high view of the angels. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do, he's saying, look at the message that the angels brought. Look at what's inside the present. Look at the message the angels brought, not at the messenger who brought it. They're important. And that's where, that's where it became in Jewish culture to say, yeah, but we wouldn't have this message if it weren't for the angels. And he's saying, you're missing the point. It's not about the angels. It's about this Messiah who is much superior. So the author of Hebrews then moves on and he says, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is Psalm 97, verse seven. And in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Psalm 104, verse four. And what's happening here? He's clearly showing superiority of Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, who he's making the connection that is Jesus over the angels. And he quotes the text. You already know this. You know this. Now apply it. Let the angels worship him. And he makes his angels spirit and servants. He's showing order. Who's actually worthy of worship? And any time... Angels are uh, in Scripture, and they're approached by men, or men approach them. And a lot of times, a lot of times in Scripture, what happens? The people that, they, that, that see the angel, they fall on their face, and immediately the angel says, get up, you don't worship me. I am not worthy of worship. And then what happens, though, when Jesus walks the earth, and people bow down and worship him? He says, yep, I'm worthy of worship. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. 
So again, there's no going back to this pretty unwrapped box once you open it. You can't do that. We can't, we can't abandon this. And again, in the context, you've got these Jewish Christians who are fearing uh, persecution, that they've got neighbors and friends and family that are still in this Judish, Judaism and still within this camp, the Old Testament, and they're saying, what are you doing? And they're being ostracized and pushed out of the family and, and persecuted uh, physically even. And they're going, ah, oh, man, maybe I should go back. And he's saying, you cannot do that. Once you open the box, you can't put it back and try to wrap it up and tape it up again. You can't do that. Either you accept that the Messiah has always been greater, even than the angels, or you have to reject all of it. You have to accept that the Messiah has always been greater. You know the text. You already know this in the sacred text. Accept it, or you got to reject all of it. It's kind of like, Either you accept oatmeal raisin cookies are and have always been greater than oatmeal cookies with chocolate, or you shouldn't have cookies with oatmeal ever. Can I get an amen? Uh, I knew that was going to happen. That was the only analogy I could think of. I was just raff, raffing my brain. <laughs> I couldn't, then I, once I thought of it, I couldn't, I couldn't, it was there. That was what it was going to be. I do believe it. One commentary, F.F. F. Bruce says this. I don't have it on there, but he says um, that in, this, in doing this, he's contrasting the evanescence of the angels with the eternity of the sun. And I had to look up evanescence because all I know is the band, uh, evanescence. And I was like, what is evanescence, Webster? Um, and and the, the definition of Webster is the process or fact of evanescing. Uh, the second definition was evanescent quality. Uh, so, so I had to go to the good old thesaurus on this one. And it just means fleetingness. All right, so F.F. F. Bruce is just saying, I don't know why they can't just write that. Why you got to use a big word that nobody knows? Even Webster doesn't even know what it means. All right, contrasting the fleetingness of the angels with the eternity of the sun. So what's he going to do? The author of Hebrews, he could have stopped there. He's already said, I've already quoted three different texts. I've already quoted three Old Testament texts and said, it's all about Jesus. But he's going to say, but I'm going to keep proving it. And he just keeps going and going here. He says, but about the son, he says, your throne. Oops, sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. What happened here? Did I? Oh, I never read this one. Here we go. But about the son, he says, your throne, oh God, will last forever and ever. This is a messianic psalm that everyone and any, even within the, uh, the Jewish communities and religion would say Psalm 45 is about the Messiah. It's not about David. It's a promise made to David about his Messiah, about the Messiah. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. There's something about this descendant of David that will reign and rule forever and ever. Guess what, Jews? You already know this. Hebrew scholars, you already know this. This is about the son. And he's trying to make the point, but the son is Jesus. And then with that same thing, he just says, and he also says, and now he's going to highlight the lordship of the Messiah because this passage, Psalm 102 there's a lot going on here that I just simply don't have time to get into when it comes to the, that metalepsis and what's going on here. 
But this is a psalm written to Yahweh. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, in the beginning was the word, it's the same thing, that Messiah is God. And God has always been this. And this is Jesus. In the beginning, Lord, he's saying, this is not just Yahweh, this is also Jesus. You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment and you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. And he's talking about this beautiful inauguration of, of the new heavens and the new earth. That everything broken and, and disgusting about this world that we live in. Yes, there's a lot of good here and a lot of beauty, right? And that's that overlap of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And as they overlap, but one day he's going to make all things new and he's going to roll them up like a robe, like a garment. It will be changed. But you, Jesus, you, Yahweh, remain the same. And your years will never end. The last passage that he quotes is Psalm 110. If I had to really pick a psalm that's my favorite psalm, it would be Psalm 110. But I'm not going to really get into Psalm 110 right now because the author of Hebrews is going to do this later in chapter 7 and 8. And so you, you, you're, you're gonna, we're going to really get into Psalm 110, and I'm really excited about, about those. Uh, I'm excited about all the weeks. I'm just excited to be going through <laughs> passages of Scripture, if you can't tell. Psalm 110, he says this again, to which of the angels did God ever say, right? He's just kind of adding the color commentary. You know what I'm talking about? If you ever watch football, you've got someone who's doing the the on-field analysis and this guy's going this way and watch, right? Circle this guy and he's going to go up and he's going to do a fade and watch the QB. He's going to look him off. The guy's like, oh, wow, did you see that guy? He uh, tripped on that one, right? That's kind of all he's doing. He's just doing a little, little color commentary in here every once in a while. He just says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And he quotes Psalm 110. He says, sit at my right hand. Again, a position of power, of authority, of purpose, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We're going to win. Again, you're seated, and I'm going to take everything evil and wicked and awful in this world, and I'm going to literally make them a footstool. They're going to become an ottoman for your feet. So you can be even more comfortable. That's going to happen. We're not there yet, but that's going to happen. He didn't say that to any of the angels. And then again, the last, last phrase that the author of Hebrews says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? This book is not about the angels. It, it talks about them, but it's not for them. It's about God. Who, who pursues his image bearers and gives his, him own, his own self so that we could be free from our own sin and suffering. One of the commentaries, I mentioned this last week, one of the, it's an actual book, and so the, the original owner wrote in it, and he had this little jingle in there. I just thought it was kind of funny. Um, so I just want to read this, because this is what, this, he, so he took this last phrase, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? That's us. Angels were sent to serve humanity. Angels don't get salvation, right? Jesus didn't die for the sins of the demons so they could repent and have eternal life. He didn't do that. Why? They're not the image bearers of God. Humanity is. And Jesus took on flesh and he still is in flesh and will always be in flesh because he loves us. It's this little poem. He says this, when angels hear redemption's story, they shall fold their wings, for angels never know the joy our salvation brings. 
It's great. It's catchy. I don't really know what it means for an angel to fold their wings. I don't even know if angels have wings, so whatever. But it's catchy. I get it. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is greater. I've quoted this, saw, or this, this uh, quote before of C.S. Lewis uh, from uh, The Weight of Glory. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I go back to a kid opening up that box and saying, wow, look at this cool toy. I don't really know how to use it yet, so I'm going to go back to this box. We're far too easily pleased. And the thing is, in this analogy, in this story, we're that kid. This isn't just a, a narrative about, about Hebrew Christians and how they should hold on. This is to us, church, how we should hold on, how we should remain in Christ and not be so quick to turn to something that pulls our eyes away from Jesus, that we ought to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So in gospel application, last week was simple. Jesus is greater. This week is simple as well. Jesus is greater than the angels. So I don't want to over-analogize or over-analogize Scripture or be allegorical with this. But what is the angel in your life? Because I think we can do this. Because I think there are things that want to pull us. What is, what, what have we held up so high? What is that thing that you have held up so high of a value that it has surpassed the value of the Savior? That it has surpassed the thing in the box? What is it? Maybe it's an angel of freedom. Maybe it's an angel of my rights. Maybe it's an angel of a, of a voice or wanting to be heard. Maybe it's an angel of, of platform. Maybe it's an angel of reform. Maybe it's an angel of status quo. Whatever it is, whatever it is, maybe it's family, maybe it's job, maybe it is sex, maybe it's um, uh, some otherworldly pleasure that was maybe even created by God but was never made to fulfill the way that Christ and God ultimately can. And so whatever it is, I can always say Jesus is much superior to that thing. He's superior to the angels, and he's superior to that temptation. He's superior to that wrapping, that present. So let's, like Jesus, set our preferences aside for one another. Let's love one another. That a watching world, I think now probably more than ever, unfortunately, is looking at the church and saying, where are you on all this? And I would quote Jesus and say, by our love, they will know. Do we love? Do we care for one another? And as we sing often from an old hymn, and I think we need to repent, we need to weep, and we need to believe, and we need to sin no more. This time we're going to enter into um, a moment of communion. And, and the way we do it here at Hope, and there's several reasons for that, but uh, if you didn't have a chance to get the, the uh, elements, they're in the back on a the table. There's some uh, just little, little kind of 
I don't know, a creamer cup thing with a wafer and juice. And um, the way we do that and why we do it this way is we would just say that we want anyone who's a follower of Jesus to be able to partake of these elements with us. That we are of a family, whether you're online or here, that we're gathered, we're assembled together to remember what it is that Christ has done, to remember that Jesus is greater and he's superior to the angels, even that thing in my life that tempts me so much that we need to repent of that. It might be an individual thing, it might be a corporate thing. We need to repent. And so as we, we're going to sing two songs, and I would encourage you to open those elements and open the, the, the top that has the bread in there that represents the body of Christ that was broken for you, that he suffered at the hands of a government and religion so that we could have life. And his body was broken. And then his blood was shed and poured out for us freely that he gave it to us so that we wouldn't have to shed our blood, that he would give life everlasting to all who believe. And we get to remember that Jesus is greater. So let's pray as we move into a time of worship, of singing, of prayer, of reflection, and of partaking of um, a sacred table that God has given us to be able to remember what it is that Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, you're good. I just look at the, the mastery that you have had and given us and related to us in your sacred text in the scriptures. That this ancient text, thousands of years old, written by 40 plus different authors, spanning thousands of years in three different languages, that this coherent book and text is marvelous. You can't make this up. It sounds too good to be true, but it is. It is true. So God, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to put our faith and our trust in Christ, the author, the giver, and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith? God, would you give us faith to believe and help our unbelief? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.